0: Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to Between the Lines with Virtual Academy, a podcast where we go beyond the bats to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. Glad to have you along. I'm your co-host, Bern Henson, and we're kind of keeping it in the family today, staying within Virtual Academy for our our guest for today's episode and uh, we'll welcome in our host before we get to our guest, Mr. Michael Warren. How are you, sir? I
1: am great. How are you today?
0: Is that, I guess that's just the natural answer. Nobody ever says I'm terrible. I've had a bad day. Just say I'm fine and go on with it.
1: <laughs> right before the, we're recording this episode here, I was blessed to be able to eat lunch. With our executive producer and another member of Virtual Academy. And I have to tell you, Brent, the food was fantastic. The company well, was great, but the best part about lunch was the playlist on oh, the radio. Yeah. I, i'm telling you i don't know what I station you didn't they were know on.
0: one band that was playing
1: uh, <laughs> you could be telling a story and it's like oh my goodness like, there's ghostbusters oh my goodness <laughs> there's cutting crew it was just it was fantastic so I, i'm fired up now because i got my music fix
0: aaron had much more of a presence earlier in the podcast and then i kind of uh came in and he doesn't go back and forth and being on the podcast anymore
1: yeah, I, I kind of miss him, to be honest with you.
0: This is the second time we've had someone from Virtual Academy on. We had Jimmy McLeod back uh, on some of our earlier episodes. so It'll be kind of fun to uh, talk to our guest today and get some insight in his career and, and his uh, perspective on law enforcement.
1: let's get to it what do you got about him
0: well our guest today is a retired law enforcement officer with over 25 years of experience which included service with the vanderbilt university police in nashville and the international police task force in kosovo at the moment he is the lead for partner support at virtual academy please join me in welcoming mr doug tulloch how are you sir oh if i was any better i'd have to be you He'd have to be our executive producer. Yeah. Did I, I got everything correct? Everything sound right? That's an illustrious career you got going on there. Yeah. Most,
2: most of the time was spent with the Jefferson County Police in Louisville,
0: Kentucky. Which yeah. I, that's the exist. one thing I was like, well, yeah. I was going to pad your intro, but I didn't want to put uh, everything yeah. in there. I wanted to leave some intrigue.
2: Yeah, it's a department that doesn't exist anymore because they merged uh, with the Louisville City Police, and it's now Louisville Metro. Okay, uh, but that happened after my retirement.
1: You can imagine trying trying to trying to apply for a job and say former employer, and I worked worked for this police department. But uh, yeah, you can't call anybody there; no, no one left. <laughs>
0: Nobody <right>.
1: old. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Daggone on it! Uh, I'm I'm really old. My first patrol
2: car was a Brontosaurus. So. <laughs>
1: You know, there's a lot to be said about getting old. None of it's good, but there's a lot to be said about getting older. But, you know, so why don't we start off then? And we joke about when you started. What was it that brought you into the law enforcement family?
2: Probably the old television show, The Rookies, in
1: 1973.
2: Rookies in 1973. The Rookies. Yeah, yeah. It was a a police drama, you know, and highlighted the, the lives of these three rookies on, you know, there was no city, given it was just a major metropolitan department, probably supposed to mirror Los Angeles. But, uh, you know, anyway, I, I'm, I'm half kidding. I just always had an interest in, in law enforcement and, and public service. And it's just kind of the way my path
1: went. It's interesting that you bring up TV because so much of what people's perception is of law enforcement is based upon what they see uh, on TV. And when I was growing up, I don't remember the rookies. Uh, but I do remember Adam twelve. Oh yeah, and, and then we we transitioned into chips and which. By, by the way, Brent, you're you're a musician. Mm-hmm. What happened to all the good theme songs? I mean, all those all those things had these very unique sounding things that drew your attention. You knew exactly what you were watching.
0: Like when you mentioned ships, it's like <laughs> you know when you hear that.
1: Exactly, I can see them shifting gears. Erica you know, coming through there. your screen.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> then, I can see them shifting gears as they're going down through there, weaving in and out of traffic. Don't but don't I, forget TJ Hooker. Oh, TJ oh, Hooker, where, where nobody Shatner, knew yeah. how to hold a PR twenty four.
2: It's, they held it like a baseball bat what's that little thing sticking out of the side
1: for okay well let's be honest with each other okay people weren't looking yeah. <laughs> we were not looking yeah i think at heather how holding was on that show <laughs> you know, i'm just saying all right <laughs> but, but you know it, it's funny that, that there often is this perception that is portrayed on tv and you can see the shift in, in the way that law enforcement has been portrayed over the years you know you go back to dragnet And then you go into these shows that we've been talking about. But at some point, the police went from being the good guys to being the bad guys. And it's also happened in society. Mm -hmm. You decide you want to be a policeman. You want to serve the public. Tell me about the police academy back in the day.
2: First, let let me just talk about this. So they hadn't hired in three years because there was a lawsuit. There wasn't enough uh, minority and female representation on the department. So there was a lawsuit and it took three years to settle it. And then there was a consent decree. So when they finally hired, they were hiring a class of 30 and believe it or not, back then, people actually wanted the job. And so there was over 3,000 applicants for 30 positions. So I felt very fortunate that I got hired to begin with. But at, at that time, the police academy was uh, was 10 weeks, and it was at the, the state academy in, at Eastern Kentucky University in Richmond. Uh, you stayed in dorms, bunk beds, you know, two, two people to a room. It was an old hotel, actually. Back then, where you, you housed? And actually the training was, was good. Uh, I felt like the training was, was very good. 10 weeks isn't long enough in my opinion, but the training that we got there was very thorough.
1: Uh, you know, I had, had no complaints about it. Well, it, it, if you think about, and you brought it up here, if you think about this, 3,000 applicants for 30 positions. And so what you have in here in essence is a competition among the applicants to be a member of an agency. What we have now are 30 agencies for one applicant, and yeah. there's a competition, but that brings its own problems because, and we've said it before on this podcast, it takes a tremendous amount of courage to come into this profession right now, but it does create an issue when the talent pool is very shallow. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. I, mean, I had friends who, who were trying to get on, and I had friends go to Houston, to Atlanta, to Tampa departments that were growing and were hiring rapidly uh, and and a lot of them went there and got two or three years experience. And then they were able to laterally transfer back home.
1: It's an interesting dynamic we have going on right now. I'm going to assume that you successfully graduated from the police academy. I, I did. And, and with any luck, it was first time around. How,
2: however, <laughs> my roommate uh, did not. On week nine, we had our final physical fitness test on week nine and he did not make it. Oh my goodness. So he was let go. Now okay. wait, wait, it gets better. So My first night on the street with my FTO, we get in a pursuit on the interstate of two motorcycles. We actually get them stopped eventually with the help of a couple of other cars. And one of the motorcycle riders was my roommate from the police oh. academy. Oh,
1: my goodness. It
0: drove him to a
2: life of crime. He had a switchblade in one boot and a bag of pot in the other. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so my first arrest was very memorable. Oh, oh my goodness. Well, that was a little bit fortuitous, so that, that, that happened in that manner, because can you imagine We he hadn't have flunked out exactly. there? Exactly. It's interesting that, that you bring up that first night on FTO. How was your FTO program looking back on things?
2: It wasn't long enough. Um, It was out of necessity just because we were so short of manpower because there had been a hiring freeze for three years. So they were pushing people out as fast as they could just to have bodies on the, to make calls. And so I think, you know, it should have been at least four or five months. It was, it was a three month program and I got cut loose after just a little over
1: two months. It's funny how things are cyclical. Because you didn't have enough people to answer the call. So they're pushing people out probably before they're properly trained. And we're starting to see that in law enforcement again. You know, you've got all this mandatory overtime in all these agencies and people are getting pushed out and the training is being reduced in order to get them out more quickly. There are ramifications for that and not just now but in the future again i'm going to make an assumption here you made it through the fto program fortunately
2: yeah, they cut they cut <laughs> me loose early enough before they could really see what i was like
0: <laughs> what did you feel like you could have uh, benefited from having more time in in the training program what did you just feel like you didn't know enough or you didn't hadn't gone yeah, through enough practical I, experience uh,
2: yeah i just felt like i hadn't experienced enough like my my first day by myself I got a a report call of a recovered stolen vehicle. It's an apartment complex, and they said this car's been sitting here for a long time. And they, you know, the dispatcher and the license plate, it was a stolen vehicle that had been abandoned. So I had to go out and take the report on the recovery. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do, say, on the report. I didn't know what to do with the car, you know, and we didn't have cell phones, you know. So I was like, "Ah, I'm not sure what I'm even supposed to do with this stolen car, you know. So, so many things, just the lack of of time and experience with an experienced officer. You learn on the job, you know, still.
1: But learning the hard ways is one thing but in this profession that can be dangerous.
2: Absolutely. And,
1: and not just in a physical sense, but you can do the wrong thing and get successfully sued, or you can do the wrong thing and lose your job. There's a lot of that going on. And it's, you know, this was, I'm not going to say how many years ago. It was a long time ago. <laughs> and here we are back again as society and as a profession, we're not learning our lessons. It's troublesome to me, but, but you make it through. You make it through FTO. Do you remember your first shift on your own?
2: Well, yeah, I do. I mean, that's the, just talking about the very first day by myself is when I got that stolen car <laughs> report. Like, I don't know what to do. I just felt, you know, I felt like a fish out of water. I was just, I don't say I was scared, but I was just nervous about what I was going to encounter that I didn't know how to handle.
1: And and, and uncertainty causes delays Mm-hmm. It causes bad decisions, absolutely. But you know, you, you made it through, and it sounds like you made it through successfully. At some point in your career, though, did you happen to become a canine handler?
2: That was my goal uh, was to to be a
1: canine officer. Oh really.
2: Yeah, why, why, why was it your goal? I don't know. I just I was I always loved dogs and uh, just watching the dogs in action, you know, as a patrolman, you know, backing up. A canine officer on a track or a building search, you know, just really was something that I just felt like I really wanted to do, but it was hard to get in to the unit. And so, you know, I was in patrol for six years before a canine opening came up that I was able to get in.
1: All right. So you get in, what kind of dog was your first dog?
2: Here's where you get into some real stories <laughs> because back then we did, the department would not purchase dogs. Hmm. You know, they call the newspaper and say, well, you put a little article, say, you know, the, the county police are looking for, for dogs if anybody wants to donate one. Oh, my gosh. Well, you talk about a waste of time. People call, I've got a German shepherd who'd make a great police dog. I say, well, well, you know, how do you know he'd make a great police dog? Cause he hates everybody. <laughs> he's bitten the mailman three times and the garbage man twice.
1: Well, it sounds like our executive producer. He's uh, describing right there. <laughs> so, and people would say, "I've got a." F- full-bred German Shepherd, we'd go
2: out and look at it, and it was half Dachshund and half Cocker Spaniel. You could tell by looking at it that, that dog had no more Shepherd in it than you or I. And so we wasted so much time taking dogs and and trying to, you know, well, this one might do, so let's take it and train it. You know, my sergeant was the trainer. I worked with the sergeant. So we would a few weeks wasted before we realized this dog's never going to make it. Finally, somebody had a, a young Rottweiler, so we took the, the rot. Too young is the main problem. He, you know they should really be at least a year and a half, but he was only like barely a year because the sergeant worked day shift. All of our training was on day shift. We trained, we trained. He was a great tracker. He was a great building searcher. Had a great nose. The bite work needed a lot of work, but the boss is like, yeah, he'll he'll mature and we'll get that. We'll work on that. He says, all right, he's good good enough. To hit the street. So we hit the street. Of course, I work night shift. We found out the dog was afraid of the dart. (laughs) (laughs) We got a track one night. We're on a track. We go by this bush with some birds in it, and the birds make noise. (laughs) He freaks out, starts (laughs) peeing all over himself, just just locks his legs into the ground. He will not budge. (laughs) Another time, we got a building search on a burglary. You know, I take him. He would not go down the basement stairs. He's, you know... (laughs) Totally frozen, you know, and so dug in. I called my sergeant. I said, this ain't working. It ain't going to work. We <laughs> Something's got to give. And so he, he convinced the department, we've got to buy a dog. And so we found a dog. Another funny story, a state trooper, Kentucky state trooper, who I don't know if they have a canine unit now. They did back then. And he had a German import shepherd that he had bred with a lady who had a, a female German Shepherd import and they had pups and they had had sold one of the pups to this uh, sheriff of this small County in Eastern Kentucky. We're talking the hollers of Eastern Kentucky. And he's like, look, the guys, this dog is great. He doesn't know what he's doing with it. You know, you could give him a small amount of money and he'd sell you the dog. So we drove to the hollers, you know, with deliverance banjos playing in the background. (laughs) And so we get there and we're looking at the dog. He's chained up to a dog house outside Big shepherd, beautiful. And and I just said, oh, I said, man, he's a really good-looking dog. I said, you know, what do you feed him? He said, well, once today I just turned him loose, and he goes down there and catches him a coon or a rabbit, <laughs> and he just has oh, his geez. own dinner. He said, but the butcher shop down the holler or- they, they'll keep some raw meat scraps for me about once every couple of weeks. I go down there and pick up some raw meat scraps and feed them to him. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So, first thing we need to do is have this dog tested for heartworms. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but we took him, and he turned out to be a fantastic dog.
1: It's interesting to me, okay? And it seems to be canine handlers uh, are the ones that do this. Uh, one of our previous guests, uh, Brent, Victor Loria, he was one of the first canines at his agency. And he literally invested thousands of dollars in his own money and did the training on his own time. And and that that type of dedication, we keep seeing it over and over again with our guests. The the amount of time that canine handlers put in training their animals and then caring for the dogs that they don't Mm. get compensated for, it just goes unnoticed by most.
2: Yeah. And, and there's been litigation over that. And so most departments now know, you know, you either, we work 10 hour shifts. And so you basically work nine and a half. Yep. Most of us took our dogs home. And so, you know, you had that 30 minutes to go home and
1: feed your dog, do whatever, you know, clean but, your But kennel. you know, and I know that 30 minutes doesn't do it. No. And not only that you've got to take extra care of your car because they do make messes. Mm-hmm. I, I just find it I'm blown away by the selfless nature of so many people in this profession.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think uh, canine handlers are are a different breed. You know, they, I don't know, they would do it for free, but they, you know, they do it because (laughs) they love it. They don't do it for the paycheck.
1: And I see what you did there. They're a different breed. Yeah, that's a, good, that's a good use of words right there.
2: How long were you a canine handler then? then I, so I was a canine handler for eight years on Jefferson County before I finally decided, all right, I think I'll take the sergeant's test just to, you know, it's it's time to have a little bump in salary. And so, <laughs> you know, I took, spending my own money and start taking some more of theirs. There we go. Took the sergeant's test and made sergeant. So, you know, I... Uh,
1: Tell me about your first shift to sergeant.
2: Well, it was, you know, it was a little bit intimidating because it's all these guys I'd worked with, you know. It was I was out in a district that I had worked as a canine handler, <laughs> and I'm looking at the guys that, you know, had, had been my backup on canine runs, and you know, I knew stuff on them, and they knew yes, stuff right. on me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: they know knew all the stupid stuff is exactly, what they know. Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
2: So, but no, it was it was a great shift of officers, just hard workers, and you know. Every one of them would lay down their life for any other officer on the shift. You know, there's always personality conflicts, but there really wasn't any to the extent where there was discourse or conflict that I had to intervene as the supervisor. Everybody got along. Everybody backed everybody.
1: One of the things that amazes me, looking back on my career now hearing about your career, but seeing in other places, is the lack of preparation that many agencies give for that first promotion I mean, there, there's not an FTO program in most agencies for sergeant. Literally, you're an officer one day, and then there's some type of little ceremony, and now all of a sudden you're a boss, and they hand you the keys, and you're supposed to know exactly what to do.
2: Yeah, I, I got to go to a 40-hour Seven Habits of Highly Effective People <laughs> seminar, <laughs> Stephen Covey <laughs> 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 seminar. That was about the extent of yeah. my management training. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Stephen Covey was a heck of a police officer for our listeners who don't know.
2: But anyway, uh, yeah, you're right. There, there really was not much in the way of training there, you know, there would be some, some supervisor training from time to time, but nothing uh, that really prepared new patrol officers, who, you know, to, to jump into the the supervisor and leadership ranks.
1: Just simple things like, Hey, here's how you check a report. You know, Here, here's when to return a report. The only way I knew when to return a report was I based it off the reports that got returned to me when I was an officer, but that didn't mean I knew all, all the reasons, you know, yeah. if that is our our frontline of defense of ensuring that our people are doing the right things, I think as a profession, we, we should do a better job with that.
2: Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. And I think most departments do today. And, and back then, my platoon was 30 officers. And so we had two sergeants since most one of us was off, you know, part of the time. But there would be days where we were both working and then there was a chef lieutenant as well. So I did rely on the on the other sergeant who had experience and the lieutenant who had experience to give me the guidance I needed to to kind of learn as I went.
1: Well, and I I will say I come from a, a union state. Okay. So, you know, there's contracts between the agencies and their jurisdictions that dictate, hey, how you're going to choose shifts. In most agencies, when you're you're the newly promoted person, you go to mids. And mids are where Murphy's Law comes in to play much, much more often. So we've got our most inexperienced people dealing with some of the most unusual of issues.
2: Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. I, I went to uh, 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. shift and I rode the district that We didn't call them precincts. They were districts. That was probably the busiest. It had some housing projects, but it also bordered the the city, kind of a a low-income end of the city. So a lot of crime spilled over from the the city jurisdiction into the county jurisdiction. And on weekends, I mean, we were just hopping. It was just, you know, there was calls backed up and, you know, they had to prioritize calls. You know, the shootings and stabbings obviously took precedent. But uh, we just, it was just nonstop, nonstop action.
1: Funny when you said, uh, the shooting calls and stuff like that, the intro to Adam 12 popped into my head. Got the, a gang with chains and you see the little dispatch card going down that little, 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 <laughs> little bitty thing right there. It's interesting because how has equipment changed since you started the job?
2: Well, it's changed a lot. I mean, back when I got hired, um, you can only carry a revolver.
1: Yeah, those, for, for, those wait, semis. For, stand by for a second. For our young listeners, a revolver is another type of handgun <laughs> that does not, does not come with a magazine and has limited capacity. All right. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, you have a six-shooter, you know, if you've watched any Westerns. <laughs> but, uh, uh, we were pretty advanced, though, because we did carry the uh, speed loaders. Oh, know? there you go. <laughs> so you just <laughs> pop in those six rounds at one time. Yes. Uh, in the academy, they they made us watch the movie on the Newhall incident. Yes, if you remember yep. that out of California, where the four chip's officers were killed, uh, and and they found spent brass in their pockets because on the range they had to because they nobody wanted to clean up after them. So you know you, what you did you empty your revolver into your into your hand, you stick the shells in your pocket. And that's what they were doing in, in the time of stress. So I mean, it was we, we had learned that much, even though we were still carrying <laughs> revolvers. You know, you you dump your brass on the ground when you
1: reload. What what type of less lethal weapons did you carry? We had
2: a, a straight baton. You know, there were no expandable batons, and this was before the PR. We switched to the PR twenty four. At some point, we had switched to that and a can of mace. There was no pepper spray. It was actually a chemical mace. Uh, this was kind of pre-maglite they were Kelites that we carried and you could get anywhere from a 3d cell to a 7d cell Kellite which you know was like carrying a baseball bat
1: yeah well, and carrying one of those things if they had the the what, what do you call the the watches that measure your physical activity throughout the day <laughs> yeah. You'd, yeah. Them, you'd max that bad boy out carrying <laughs> that that flashlight what, what about a radio we,
2: we had portable radios we didn't have holsters to put them in you stuck it in your back pocket and we didn't have we didn't have shoulder mics so you know whenever you need to talk on the radio you had to reach behind you pull your radio out of your back pocket put it to your mouth hold down on the button and and transmit
1: in the midst of carrying your baseball bat and (laughs) trying to hold on to the uh, suspect there yep what about computers in cars what? <laughs> we didn't have computers in the office when I first started. Nobody had computers. <laughs> so so you, you're one of my peeps. You, you remember the day uh, of writing reports on paper, that was actually triplicate. Did, did you have the multicolored stuff too? Yep. Uh, you, yep. So you've got the white copy, the original, and then you've got the yellow copy and the pink. So mm-hmm. that means you had to have three different types of liquid paper when you made a mistake because you had to do the white <laughs> yeah. on top, then you had to go underneath to do the yellow. So you know what yeah. I'm talking oh, about, absolutely, there
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. We did have typewriters, and I think they were actually electric <laughs> typewriters in the office. <laughs> <But>
1: <laughs> typewriters uh, for our millennials. That was the machine where, where us old people would put two spaces after the period. Because I see it all the time now. Listen, all you people learn to type on typewriters. Quit doing two spaces after the period. To this day, if somebody sees me on a keyboard, they ask, why do you press those keys
2: so hard? And I'm saying, because I took typing in high school and they were manual typewriters. I kid you not. And you had to smack the crap out of them <laughs> to get them to go down yes and so that's how i learned to type yeah. it, it sticks with you forever
1: it's typing with authority that's, that's what that's it is it. <laughs> and i remember the first word processor i got back in college you know my commodore 64 and this word processor i'm typing along cursor would get to the one end of the screen what do you think i did i'd I'd hit enter i'd hit enter and somebody said man you don't have to push enter i said what do you mean he goes it's like voodoo you know you just keep typing and this thing goes down to the next line it's magic so you know what i'm talking about right well i don't even have to explain it to you man that's fantastic so so how long did you stay a sergeant then about four and a half years before i retired
0: At Virtual Academy, we're helping our clients build better prepared public safety professionals by offering high-level training provided by engaging national experts. With hundreds of hours of training available instantly, Virtual Academy offers the functionality your officers need so they can train as their schedules permit. Find out how Virtual Academy can meet the needs of your agency today. Visit virtualacademy.com for a complete list of courses, training resources, and more. Virtual Academy. Because you deserve more.
1: Okay. And what did you do after you retired? I went to Kosovo. Uh, on purpose? Yes. And what did you do in Kosovo? I
2: worked for the UN International Police Task Force. It was right after the conflict over there between the Serbs and the Albanians. And then NATO got involved. There could be all kinds of political discussions about that, which I won't get into. But once the war officially was over, what happened was the Serbs had controlled everything. Well, the Serbs fled. There were still some Serb enclave villages, but as far as Serbs had controlled all the police department, all the government, uh, so there was no police at all. So the UN had to send in officers twofold. The, the OSCE Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe ran the actual police academy to try and train new Albanian officers. To be police officers. So as they were coming out of the academy, our job was to basically be like FTOs for them. But also we were the actual police because there weren't armed police to respond to calls. So you were standing
1: up a brand new police force and at the same time trying to enforce the law. In a place that had just ended in a war.
2: Yeah, we, had, we drove four-wheel drive Toyota, four runners, and, and still you might get stuck in potholes. The, the, the roads were in such mm. bad shape.
1: I think it's a good time to bring up when, when you go over and you see that type of condition, how did it make you feel in retrospect about your agency?
2: Oh, yeah. Wow. Everything I'd ever complained about was out the window. You know, it's like, oh, man, you know, you just don't realize how good you have it. There were police officers from, I think, like 56 countries that were part of this International Police Task Force. I think there was uh, was like 4,500 officers total. I think 600 were Americans. Uh, And then, you know, once you got there, you know, it was a it was a 10 day Uh, When you got hired, it was a 10-day assessment in Fredericksburg, Virginia, by by DynCorp, which the the contractor that handled that contract with the State Department. And so you went through 10 days of training and testing. And if you you made it, you didn't go home. You got on a plane. It was a chartered—the UN chartered a jet. It was an old Russian aeroflot plane that they had repainted that said East Line on it. They'd taken out the front half of the seats— and we were loading all of our, we had to load our own gear into the luggage compartment and all of our guns and ammo into the, the front part of the cabin. <laughs> and half the seats were broken. I, was, I think I flew leaning to the left
0: <laughs> the whole now, flight. Do you apply for this position? Or are you recruited for it? Yeah, does it come no, it's,
2: well, they were recruiting, but, but you, you know, you have to apply for it. It was good money. Uh, you know, it was good tax-free money.
1: <laughs> and so. Yeah, but when you have to load your own stuff and you're sitting behind your guns and ammo on a plane. That where nothing's working the way that it should, that's when you begin to question your life choices.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we landed in Gander, Newfoundland to refuel, and they made us get off the plane. I don't know
1: why. Probably fear of fire starting when <laughs> There there
2: <don't> we, <laughs> we had to walk across and it was it was like a cold sleet. This was like early November, and it was a cold sleet, you know, driving Horizontal hitting you right in the face. It was bitter cold. We had to walk across the tarmac to the actual little terminal there. And, and wait in this tiny little terminal until we could get back on the plane.
0: That's how Newfoundland gets visitors and, and tourists. That they to <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm pretty sure that wasn't in a brochure, right? <laughs> you, you land there, and I don't know if everybody had the same feeling that I did, but when I went to the basic police academy, there was this this sense of uncertainty as to what I was getting into. I had this image in my mind about what I was getting into, and uh, then it, then it hits you, right? I can only imagine... What that must have been like for you—that uncertainty in your mind. I just went through these ten days of testing. Now, all of a sudden, let's load the plane, let's go, fellas. <laughs> Where we're going now—and and literally going into the unknown—to yeah. a yeah. place that I don't speak the language, and I mm-hmm. just—I I can't imagine what that must have felt like for you.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was—it was a little bit scary, but you know, once once we got there and got on the ground, you know, we had translators, and 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 really, it was it was really rewarding because I got to know two different cultures. Uh, The first part of my mission, I was in an all Albanian area. And so, you know, I had Albanian translators. I worked with Albanian officers. I got to know the Albanian culture. You know, I had people invite me into their homes and, you know, serve traditional Albanian food. And then, you know, I really wanted to experience both sides of the conflict though. So I, I put in For a a transfer, I was the supervisor of the regional investigations unit in the region I was in, but there was an opening for a deputy station commander in a a small station up in the mountains right next to what used to be the largest ski resort in Yugoslavia. And so I put in for it and I got it because it was all Serb. It was a Serb village. The military, well, well, they really weren't NATO, but what happened was when NATO came in, Russia said, we're coming too. Right. And, And Ukraine came with them. And so... The Ukrainian army base was in a hotel right there in the village that I lived in. So I got to know several of the Ukrainian military members, which kind of, you know, made the conflict over there a little more personal for me because I'd met those guys and, you know, just regular folk. And so were the the Serbs, you know, you you got a living allowance. You had to go find your own place to live once you got there. Most guys would go together with two or three other guys and rent a house and because of the, the war, there was basically no employment for most people. So families would move out of their house and move in with other family members and rent their vacant house out to UN personnel or other NGO personnel as a way to make money.
1: Just listening to your experiences over there, I recognize, and, and I love, I love America and, and I love the American judicial system and I love American law enforcement, and, but I recognize that there's room for improvement and we should be striving for improvement. But when you hear stories like that, I think we're incredibly blessed with the law enforcement system we have in our country because there are still countries today oh, yeah. are messed up like you had to deal with there.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think there always will be, unfortunately. But, I mean, it was just just the difference in mindset, you know, when I was still in Regional Investigations Unit. So, you know, there had been some officers who had been out some some Albanian officers had been out long enough, and so we were training them to be investigators. And so we finally felt like, okay, there's two or three of them that are probably ready. So there was a burglary. We let them handle it. They went out and brought in a suspect, took him into the interrogation room, which was right next to my office. And I hear, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> go running in there and they've they've taken a broken chair leg they've taken the guy's shoes and socks off and they're beating him on the bottom of his feet where it won't leave a mark <laughs> to Whoa. get we, we've almost got the confession yeah, <laughs> like, I bet you do I'm <laughs> <yeah. laughs> like that's nah, not how it's done you know the whole purpose of us being there was to teach democratic policing methods but you know they're going back to what they had experienced from the Serbs when they were in charge of the police department is what
1: was normal to right. them well but that, that that's the thing w- we're incredibly blessed uh, yeah. because there are protections in place, and, and by and large, they work. Right. You know, again, there's room for improvement, but we're incredibly blessed to be and work in a system, be a part of a system that has advanced, mm-hmm. that, that has gone beyond. Because yeah, I recognize law enforcement's not perfect. But we have improved, and we're continuing to improve. Yeah. So, so how long were you in, in Kosovo then? Thirteen, almost fourteen months.
2: Wow. It was a one-year contract, and I stayed a little bit longer. Uh, there, they were having elections, and it was potential for you know violence with the elections, and so I stayed long enough to help organize the election security for the different polling stations in the the area that that I was. Very cool. In.
1: So you get back to the states. What's what's your next move?
2: Next move was my wife and I moved to
1: Poland. I, I said, <laughs> I, I said, when you get to the states,
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> we uh, we had been uh, we had taken a, a few short term mission trips with our church to this place in Poland, the Polish youth ministry that ran summer camps for for underprivileged kids, and and we loved it over there. So we decided to go over there and volunteer, and we we actually lived over there for four
1: years. That's a lot of volunteering yeah how was that experience for you?
2: fantastic I would move back to Poland again if I had the chance It's a great country great people great food we some of our best friends are there do
0: you have family roots in Poland or just nope, three?
2: none whatsoever we helped this ministry open a youth center in this town that was really high employment a lot of drug and alcohol abuse the kids had nowhere to go you know after school and so we opened up like an internet cafe tea house we'd bring in local musicians and do concerts. We rented a high school gym and did one night of basketball, one night of indoor soccer. Just gave them something to do. And then we had started an English school.
0: My wife and I both taught English.
1: Have you noticed a theme through this guy's life? It's a whole lot of service going on. Oh, yeah. You know, and, you know I mean,
0: it's almost like I was hearing about his time in Kosovo where, It's, you know, he kind of showed up and it's like that part of early in his career where he felt unprepared almost at early time in his career has prepared him for some of those other times in his life where he he kind of knew how to adjust as he went along.
1: Again, I'm struck by how selfless the people are in this profession, that by and large, it's about service. Yeah. But after four years, I won't say the state's. What happened after four years?
2: <laughs> we we actually came back home and uh, moved to Nashville. Our son finished high school and he had an internship at a recording studio and he had no desire to go to college. He's a gifted musician, composer. So he was working in this recording studio. So we said, you know, why not Nashville? So we moved to Nashville and uh, first moved to Nashville. I just was looking for any kind of job, supplement my retirement. So I was managing the custodial company that cleaned the Dollar General headquarters in Goodlitzville for that lasted two months. I said no thank you.
1: <laughs> Send me back to Kosovo.
2: Yeah, really. And uh and then I got a job as a tissue bank processing technician.
1: Okay. So I was about to ask tissue bank, but never mind.
2: I cut up I cut up body parts
1: for a living. Yeah. Kind of like the butcher back with the first dog there.
2: Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, that that wasn't my cup of tea either. Uh, So that's when I uh, I went and talked to the chief at Vanderbilt and he hired me. So uh, I worked for the Vanderbilt police for almost four years and uh, they had started a uh, a canine unit at that time was was all just uh, explosive detection dogs because they had so many events, so many different venues. So any event was going to have like 500 people or over, we would do bomb sweeps before every sporting event of any kind before concerts got to be backstage with the Dave Matthews band it was some some cool opportunities wait you 2 oh my yeah. goodness
1: YouTube yeah there's a there's a YouTube there's a little bit of rivalry going right. on here with the with the between the line cast here now, about wait a minute. the viability a, of YouTube I got a funny story
2: about the YouTube <laughs> oh because we're backstage YouTube 2 had in their, in their contract at, with any venue that there had to be an explosive sweep of that venue before the concert, for safety reasons, obviously. So they were playing a show. It was another country. I want to say it was a Scandinavian country, but I don't remember for sure. But anyway, the dog handler comes in. He's backstage, and he's just walking around, and the dog alerts on one of the crew members. And they're like, what? You know, what the heck? The officer said his face turned red and he pulled the dog away and he started leaving. They're like, wait a minute, what's going on? The guy's like, look, we don't have a bomb dog. We only have a drug dog. (laughs) (laughs) Disregard radio. (laughs) So so they thought they would... (laughs) (laughs) They would get away with just sending in, you know, a dog that was sniffing for something, you know? Oh, yeah. (laughs) They knew they weren't going to find any bombs.
1: What's the big deal? (laughs) And it almost worked (laughs) until somebody had a little weed. (laughs) So so how long were you in Vanderbilt then?
2: Uh, Almost four years, yeah. And then... uh, Campus policing wasn't for me. I won't say anything more about that. Nothing nothing wrong with Vanderbilt. but the and that's campus, all I had
1: to say about that.
2: Campus policing was not for me. So uh, I got a job with a, a Medicare contractor doing Medicare and Medicaid fraud investigations. Did that for a couple of years. Didn't love it. It was a high pressure, just a lot of heavy caseload. And, uh, you know, I was doing a lot of traveling. I covered Louisiana and Mississippi.
1: When you went to Louisiana, did they provide a translator? <laughs>
2: sometimes i felt like i needed one but they did provide
1: some pretty good
2: crawled ads
1: oh yeah there we go there we go uh, so how'd you end up at virtual academy then
2: when i realized that the uh, looking at spreadsheets of Medicare claims was not going to be my cup of tea either. <laughs> I knew Ray Ferris from having uh, finished college through uh, Bethel University. He had worked with Shane Petty, yep, as another podcast guest uh, with the Tennessee State Parks. and uh, But he also uh, started Bethel's criminal justice degree program. And so that's how I knew Ray. And so I just called him out of the blue one day. I said, hey, is Bethel looking for any recruiters right now? And he says, can you meet me for lunch tomorrow? I'm like, yeah. So he says, uh, uh, just to let you know, he said, uh, I'm not with Bethel anymore. I just started with this new outfit called Virtual Academy. And he explained what it was. And he said, uh, you know, need somebody to be like a partner support to, you know, assist all of our departments that are coming on board and help them out. He says, you interested? I said, absolutely.
1: So that was uh, over nine years ago. And here I am. Brent, I wasn't a math major. In, in college, I've been silently keeping track of, of all these life experiences that he had. I'm buying the brontosaurus story now.
0: <laughs> had me at rookies. That's where I was at. You know? That's the year I was born.
2: I, I tried to tell you I was old. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Anybody that came on and was still carrying a revolver because they had to, uh, you know, you know, they've been around. A, yeah, they've well, been around
1: a while. As you look back uh, and th- there's a lot of stuff going on in law enforcement, right? right now but as you look back and somehow you were able to go back in time would you do it all again
2: yeah i would absolutely now one caveat here i don't know if i'd do it today
1: but but you know it's one of those things that that, that i'm struggling with personally if not me then who Yeah. And the stuff that's going on right now. And for our listeners that are in the profession, again, we thank you for the job that you're doing because you're doing it under incredibly difficult circumstances. But the truth of the matter is when people are no longer willing to serve, then that creates its own problems. Absolutely. It's a young person's game. I mean, physically, it's a young person's game. But there are times, buddy, I don't know about you, but I think to myself, Go ahead, coach, put me back in.
2: Yeah. No, no, I do miss it. I I do there are times where I really, I really miss it. I mean, I loved it. It was it was a great job. You know, you were talking earlier about the things that were different when I first started. Body armor. Oh yeah. Nobody wore it. And we were issued body armor. We weren't sized. They just had a box and they just they picked an old raggedy piece of body armor and threw it at me. And I had like an mine was like an XXL and I'm not an XXL person. (laughs)
1: So it would I, double your body weight at I that couldn't, point. I
2: couldn't wear it. So my wife, we were, you know, newly married. She's like, look, you know, you're, I'm going to support you in your profession, but you're going to have to spend the money and get your own body armor. And I did. You know, of course, that changed over the years where – Body armor was was mandatory and issued and properly fitted and all of those things, but back then it wasn't. And my first sergeant used to ridicule me for wearing body armor. And he said, you know, what's going to happen if they shoot you in the head? I said, I'm going to be dead. But what happens if they shoot me in the back or the chest? I might not be dead. The ironic thing is just two years before that, we had an officer shot in the back by a 15-year-old girl with a 22 revolver, and it killed him. Had he had body armor... He would have gotten some bruising. And so, you know, I just never understood, you know, among the old timers, you know, it was just, it was a macho thing. But more guys, you know, I think more guys and and ladies that that came out of my class, you know, they saw the need and a lot of them bought their own body armor.
1: For you, you officers who are out there right now and, and think that it's too hot to wear your body armor or it's too uncomfortable, I don't care wear your body armor it saves lives if you go back and you look at the numbers the reason for the big decline in the number of line of duty deaths from the 70s into the 80s some of it was due to training but most of it was due to the advent of body armor it saves lives
2: body armor. And, and like uh, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman talks about, you know, uh, the medical profession has advanced. Absolutely. The trauma care has advanced over the past two or three decades to where what would have been a fatal gunshot 30 years ago may not be fatal today. So that brings stats down and, and it can be deceiving.
1: Yes. A False sense of security. False yep. sense of security. You know, as we're wrapping up here, if you could go back, you could find young Dougie and give him a piece of advice that he could carry throughout his career, what would that piece of advice be? Besides wearing body armor.
2: Uh, Gosh. I I think it would be don't be so influenced by those who you know maybe aren't doing the right thing. You know, just maintain your integrity. And even if you admire and respect somebody as an officer because you've seen them do some amazing things, if they do something that isn't amazing, don't emulate that behavior. You know, don't try and be like Mike, you know, that that type of thing.
1: Doing the right thing is always the right thing to do. Yeah. Not always easy thing, but yeah. it's always the right thing to do. Oh,
2: absolutely. And and nowadays more than ever. Absolutely. because I mean, you know, there were no cell phones there, so there were no cameras. There were no handheld video cameras, you know, Rod, a.k.a. Rodney King, even yes. back when I first started. So, you know, there was stuff that officers didn't have to worry about their actions. And now everybody's got a camera in their hand, the body cameras. So, which is a good thing. Yes. You know, it's going to help remind officers, Hey, you know, don't lose control. And it's not that officers are out there deliberately doing bad things, but it's easy. And I've been there. It's easy when you're in a a stressful fight to go that one step too far. Sometimes the the self-control is just so important
1: nowadays more than ever. Brent, I will tell you that it's been my experience that the people who lose control the least often are the ones who are most prepared. And we've talked about training today, how important training is. Uh, But if we train our people and we train them well, and we train them appropriately, we're going to get much better decisions being made even under stress. And so I think one of the best things that we can do as society is to invest in the training of our officers. Yeah. We're going to get better results as uh from that
0: and another thing is you're talking about about the, the environment that we're in today i don't know how much a difference our particular podcast is having but at least we're shining a light where we can hear the perspective and the point of view from some of these folks that have been in law enforcement so the discussion can be started and we kind of learn what are we doing right what
1: are we doing wrong and again and i've said it today and i've said it before what we have to be striving to get better because I don't think there's anybody in this profession that says that we're perfect. But we have to be striving to get better. But looking back on uh, the experiences that we heard about today, we're doing pretty daggone good, you know, especially compared to many other places in the world. As we close the, the episode, uh, I want to say a big thank you to you again for your service and and it's again not just the law enforcement stuff but man the stuff that you did afterwards i mean making an investment in young people in another country i I mean that that that's where change starts in my opinion you know we, we have to start with the kids by the time they get old it's very difficult to change but thank you for your service there thank you for what you do with virtual academy uh the sponsor here uh they do great stuff and we thank them for putting on this podcast, investing in us, allowing us the forum to be able to tell these stories as usual. I hate to say, knock on wood, but another great great episode with a great guest, uh, great stories. I, I thought it was fantastic.
0: Yeah, today. and I think uh, kudos to to Doug for doing the voices, too, of all the people he ran into. That really sealed the stories home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: we might get some calls from Kentucky this week, but who knows, yeah. you know. Let me just let me just close by saying
2: that the Jefferson County Police was the most advanced, it was the most sought-after department in the state at that time. Uh, it really was, and it was the greatest group of, of men and women that I've ever worked with in my life.
1: That's fantastic. We want to
0: shine the light on more stories like this. So if you have a story you'd like to share, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us. It's uh, between the lines at virtualacademy.com. And you can go to our website to get all the past episodes. You can find our contact information, our links to social media pages, all that and more. It's at between the lines with virtualacademy.com. Thank you so much, Doug. We appreciate you coming by today. My pleasure.